Welcome to Spiritual Psychology. My name is Renee Lavalley McKenna, and I bring my 30 plus years as a recovering addict and ex crazy person turned therapist and shamanic healer to bring you snackable teachings on spirituality, psychology, and all things personal growth. And today I want to talk about trust, particularly trusting the rules of society, of our culture, even of our caregivers. And how I've come to take a very skeptical view of the worldview of other people. Because the worldview of others, although it certainly can be helpful, does not always have my highest good in mind. When I'm talking about rules, I mean the structures and expectations that are often laid out for us for behavior, for how we spend our time, and even what we consider important in our own lives. And although structure certainly has its place, and over time I have come to really benefit from healthy discipline, having some bright lines that I don't cross, being very clear about my intentions, my motivations, and actually try to be very clean in how I use my words and my actions, mostly because I've reaped the painful consequences of irresponsible, selfish, and self-destructive patterns. I've kind of run the full gamut with rules from following them fearfully as a child because I wanted people's love and approval for being good, and being good was deeply unsatisfying, so I went to the complete other extreme and became a radical fuck-the-rules street punk petty criminal, drug-dealing vandal. And over time, maturity and a lot of self-growth work and grounding in spiritual principles, I've kind of developed my own set of rules about what it means to be successful, happy, and my own morality about being a good person. And many people find modern American life to be kind of unhealthy, unsatisfying, and unfulfilling. And if you feel that way or know people who do, they might be kind of living somebody else's idea of a good life rather than what's authentic to them. And if you fall into that category, you may be living somebody else's idea of what it means to have a life. And I'm going to tell you there is an authentic path for each of us. And finding it is a journey of joy, satisfaction, and deep fulfillment. But my trust in the structures of authority was broken very early. My parents' ideas of what was true didn't fit with me from the start. From a psychology or development standpoint, I'm the only child of two fairly incompetent, dysfunctional people. They're dead now, so I can say that. Not that I didn't say that when they were alive, (laughs) but um, not to their face anyway. And honestly, by the age of five or six, I realized that they had very little that I wanted, and in fact, very little to offer me which felt helpful or valuable. And so the structure, rules, and modeling of my parents felt inadequate and actually irrelevant for me. And I felt like I needed to figure this thing out by myself, or I'd better get some outside help. The first instance of that was around the age of five. There's a big consciousness shift around the age of five or six for most people, and kids become aware of their own mortality. My own son was particularly obsessed with death. And as a young child, I spent a lot of time thinking about death myself. And one particular day, I was thinking about my death and how devastating that would be to my mother because I could feel her emotional dependence on me. 
At that stage, my mother's worth and value was very tied to my presentation in the world. So I was still in my trying to be perfect phase. That didn't last all that long. (laughs) But um, trying to make everything okay for mom. And I was thinking about how devastated she would be when I died, or if I died. And she came on me crying, which was kind of unusual because I didn't cry a lot. And she asked me what was the matter, and I told her, I'm thinking about how sad you're going to be when I die. And she said, oh, no, 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 honey. You're thinking about how sad you'll be when I die. And it was one of those pivotal moments where I realized my mother was incapable of seeing me, that her filter was so thick that her own rules and structures that she held the world in couldn't accommodate me. And honestly, I never spoke deeply or vulnerably to her again. In fact, I kind of shut down that deeper part of myself. It didn't resurface until I was in my 20s. Not long after that, in first grade, I got terribly bullied by the boys. They used to wait for me after school on this path that I took walking home by myself, and they'd ambush me, push me down, tease me, steal my stuff to try to get me to chase them. It was horrible. I hadn't had a lot of social interaction before I went to school, so I didn't have a ton of social skills. It was just me and my mother and my two little friends next door. I had a father, but he was very uninvolved. He mostly was at work and watching TV. I had absolutely no idea how to defend myself or understand the complexity of what was happening. Now, over the years, I got to have conversations with those guys as we got older and found out they had crushes on me and thought I was cute. That horrible thing that boys will do to be abusive to girls that they like. So I started to have anxiety and I felt sick to my stomach every day. And I didn't want to go to school. But I already knew my mother was useless because she hadn't been able to defend herself in her own life very well. But she asked me what was going on, and eventually I told her about the boys, and she said to me, Well, honey, sticks and stones can break our bones, but names will never hurt us. (laughs) And even at six, I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, and completely unhelpful. And that sealed the deal for me that I believed for many years there was no help for me outside of my own resources. And we were a solidly middle-class family. We owned a home. My father worked every day. My mother stayed home. And I went to school trying to be perfect. But I had this existential anxiety that was almost unbearable. And I lived to the east side of this little elementary school. And to the west side was a huge low-income housing development, the White People Projects. At that point, there was only one black family in all of Weymouth. I think it's become much more diverse now, thank God. But this was in the 70s pre-desegregation in the suburbs of Boston, and children learn by modeling themselves after those they admire. And I really came to admire Nancy McDougal and Missy Moore, two very pretty but also very tough girls from the projects. And nobody messed with them, and they seemed unafraid, and I desperately wanted to be unafraid. And I studied them much more diligently than I studied math or history. And it took a long time, and it wasn't probably till I got the assistance of lots of drugs and alcohol that I became a tough girl myself, and people became afraid of me, and I kind of liked that power. And by the age of 12, which was when I started getting drunk and high, I had already gone pretty deeply in getting all A's in school, getting awards for artwork, 
being the lead in the school play. And although it may have made my parents proud and happy, it did not win me friends or quell my anxiety. In fact, my gifts and talents had the opposite effect of actually alienating me from this substantially underprivileged social group. And it's an interesting karmic twist that is an extreme extrovert who loves to be with groups and crowds of people that I was born an only child. Social connection has always been incredibly important to me. Grounding, nourishing, supportive. We all need social interaction and contact. A tribe or a community to belong to is one of the great losses of the COVID experience. But that need is exceptional for me. So following the societal rules of doing well in school, having outward success was meaningless. In fact, it was even a negative. And so after years of studying the tough girls, I made the full transition into the fuck the rules crowd and started selling drugs, stealing, hitchhiking, flunking out of class, hooking up with boys. And I had more friends and more fun than I could have imagined. Now, I crashed and burned pretty quickly because what started out as escapist fun quickly became an addiction. And I also developed an eating disorder and was making myself puke every day, sometimes more than once a day. And bulimia was one of the most excruciating, isolating, self-shaming behaviors that I have ever participated in. So I crashed and burned pretty quickly and had my first attempt at getting clean and sober at 16. I did know that I had a brain, although I hadn't used it for quite a few years, <laughs> and at least not intellectually or academically. And the boyfriend that I had at the time and I decided to stop drinking and drugging. And I would focus on school and do some extracurriculars so that I could go to college. And I'm a very extreme person, so I went from being a complete street corner punk and petty criminal to being president of the senior class and getting A's in all of my honors classes. I actually had an amazing high school education at Weymouth North High School, which doesn't exist anymore. And I got to take art classes every day for three years from this incredible teacher, Mr. Chop. I've tried to find him, I'm sure he's passed away, to thank him. And I developed an art portfolio. I had also really loved chemistry. And so my senior year, I couldn't decide if I should go to art school, do chemistry, or government and international politics. And I either didn't have anybody guiding me or I sounded so convincing in whatever bullshit I was spouting at that time. And so I did what I've seen a lot of people do who can't make up their mind between really positive options, and I did nothing. And I took a gap year, and I worked a crappy job as a receptionist in a manufacturing plant. And I ended up going to a really terrible school, which lost its accreditation a few years after I left and descended into alcoholism and addiction. And luckily, that was intense enough that I crashed and burned again in my early 20s and began my path of personal growth work, spiritual practice, and trying to be of service to others. And after a long and winding path and starting what feels like my real career, to bring the culmination of all of my experiences to benefit others and myself in my late 50s. And you may have heard me say before that I expect the next 20 or 30 years to be the most productive of my life. And I was unprepared for that productivity a moment before now. 
And I love working with young people. I had a client last week who's 19, and he was telling me that he feels like he's so far behind everyone else. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> I'm going to be 58 in a couple minutes, and I know I'm right on time. And so are you. And so there are these social constructs, which for me kind of fall in the rules category, that you go to school and you do well in school, and then you go to a good college and you do well in college, and then you get a job and you do well at your job. And then you get married and you have children, and then you get old and then you die. Maybe you play golf in there somewhere or learn how to knit or something like that. And my father kind of did that. And I've seen a lot of people do it. And it is not a life that's interesting to me. And I do have a lot of teens in my life right now in high school preparing for college. And there's tremendous pressure put on these kids to live for the future, to totally overburden and overwork themselves so that they can get approval by some admissions board at some school. And I can't tell you how many people have come into my office from Silicon Valley who followed that track. I went to Cornell or NYU or Stanford, got the big job, the Tesla, the condo, and they work 70 or 80 hours a week and they hate their life. And that conveyor belt of American cultural success may work for a lot of people. I don't know. The people it works for aren't coming to me and they're probably not listening to this podcast right now. And I am actually quite a fan of structure and routine. I get up early every morning. I work out three times a week. I have a couple different spiritual communities that I belong to, also like three times a week. Two or three days a week, I only eat one meal a day. And those are rhythms and structures that work for me. I see clients, I facilitate groups, and I have a lot of creative projects that I work on once or twice a week. But I have a nap time scheduled every day too. The advantages of self-employment. And I have some pretty clear... I guess you could call them rules. I don't do anything mood or mind-altering. I haven't for over 35 years because that's what works for me. No drinking, no drugs, no psych meds, no hormones. I have come to trust my own system to regulate itself. I have no judgment on other people and we all have our own path, but that's what I have found works for me. I don't have sex outside of a committed, loving relationship. And I try not to eat food or have deep emotional conversations after 8 p.m. at night or before 9 in the morning. And so finding our own internal structure and rules is really important, particularly if the external structure and rules that are handed to us by our family, our culture, our religion, or society at large don't work for us. And so I want to suggest that you are right on time in your life. And then perhaps, like me, the rules don't apply to you. And if they do, and you're on that conveyor belt of American success, and you feel good about it, awesome. But if that conveyor belt's not working, if you don't feel good about where you're going or how you're going there, you might want to jump off that baby and assess if that conveyor belt is actually going in a direction that serves your highest self. Or ask the larger life force or your own highest self, what is my highest good? What are my deepest dreams, my most outrageous goals? We do only get one shot here in this form. This is not a dress rehearsal. And although I believe we get other tries in other lifetimes, I will never be myself and you will never be yourself and it will never be this moment, this configuration or this lifetime again. So if you get off the conveyor belt, you might want to hike, mountain bike, get on a bus. You might even go in the other direction. 
There's what we want from life, but there's also what life wants from and for us. And the universe rises to meet and support us when we open our mind to new possibilities and different ways of being, growing, and experiencing. So if the rules and structures, if the trajectory that you're on feels good, keep at it. Awesome. And if it doesn't, you might want to get off that trajectory and assess your compass settings. Because the opportunities for joy and fulfillment in this life are manifest and many, but they don't happen without our cooperation. And so I give you permission to fuck the rules or to follow them. Whatever feels best in your heart and in your gut. Forget your mind. Head's full of lies. But the body tells the truth. So listen to your deeper self. You are exactly where you need to be right now. And if you pay attention deeply, the information you need for your next steps is right here. And it's okay to need help in decoding and navigating that process. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want help in your own process, feel free to reach out to see if spiritual psychology work might be helpful to you. You can shoot me an email, info at reneemckenna.com. You can find me on Instagram at McKenna. I'm doing a lot of free workshops, deep teachings and healings on Insight Timer, my favorite new app I'm talking about all the time. I'm also preparing to start my first year-long mentorship program. I'm happy to give you more information on that if that's interesting for you. Deepening the path of healing, service, and empowerment for the benefit of ourselves and all those we serve. Deep gratitude to my supporters on Patreon. Blessings on your path until we meet again. This is Renee LaValle McKenna for Spiritual Psychology.